Episode 52, the atomic number of tellurium. There are 52 weeks in a year. Daylight savings is coming this weekend, so I am going to have sex on Saturday night for an hour and three minutes. Go! Um, Scott, I think you should try that again. There are 52 weeks in a year. No joke, when I was 52, I decided I was going to spend a lot more time alone, and my partner said that's selfish, and I said, no, it's not. It's for everyone else's safety. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 52nd episode of The Prov G Show. In today's episode, we speak with Andrew Ross Sorkin, a columnist for The New York Times and co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box. We discuss with Andrew the market SPACs and our economic recovery, or lack thereof. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Ross Sorkin. I think there are, well, there are a lot of people I look up to and think I would like their life or I would like their professional life. Uh, and Andrew's one of them. He's recognized a tremendous amount of success and relevance, writing. He gets his book made into movies, unlike the dog. But anyways, I'm a little bit jealous. He's also a very like a, a lovely guy. I've gotten to know him and his wife a little bit, and they're both just in, impressive, nice, you know, thoughtful, humble people. Anyways, enough enough of me puckering up for the Canadian Andrew Osorkin. By the way, he claims he was born and raised in Manhattan. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Okay. Okay. What's happening? President Biden is expected to sign a roughly $2 trillion COVID relief package into law this week after the House of Representatives voted on the bill for a second time. The American Rescue Plan will be President Biden's first major piece of legislation. The relief package includes aid such as $1,400 stimulus checks to certain income groups, $130 billion for K-12 schools. That's a little bit late, isn't it? $123 billion for COVID-19-related policy and $360 billion to state and local governments, with $10 billion allocated for infrastructure projects. Everyone has got their hand in the kitty on this one. $6 trillion so far in stimulus, or as I like to call it, a hate crime against future generations. Yeah, maybe $1 trillion if it got to where it was supposed to go. But in a study released by CNBC, somewhere between 40 to 50% of young people who are already retail investors, so granted they already invest in the market, plan to put the majority of their stimulus into the market. 85% of people receiving stimulus claim they're not going to spend it, meaning the stimulus isn't getting to the right place. So again, continued loaves of bread and circuses for the poor such that we can pump most of it into the market where we, we get that sugar high, that heroin hit of increasing stock prices, 90% of which goes to the top 1%. Yay, relief. That's not relief. It's further income inequality. This relief package is less bad than the rest. They have lowered the income limits for which you could are eligible for stimulus. They are putting more of it towards what has probably been some of the most, um, what will be some of the most everlasting or some of the most evergreen damage, and that is schools being closed. So hopefully we'll get more schools open. Uh, however, I think bailing out states is a bad idea. I think a lot of states are out over their skis, and that is slowly but surely they've been weaponized by special interest groups or their budgets have been weaponized by special interest groups. And the only way you can get elected is to promise to increase budgets or not uh, have difficult conversations with unions. And I think of myself as a fairly pro-labor guy. I'm a member of a union, the UAW, as a, as a matter of fact, that is... Uh, the union that you join at uh, NYU Stern. But anyways, look for the union label right here. Tattoo it on my ass just because I'm 56 and want to get a tattoo, so why not? Or maybe I'll just get a nose ring. Anyway, it's time for states and local governments to get their house in order. Specifically, it costs 11 times 
the amount to build a mile of subway in Manhattan than it costs in France. And France isn't exactly known as a model of economic efficiency. California has become ungovernable and the taxes are so high. And what is happening? There is a giant sucking sound coming out of California, New York to Texas and Florida. Want to know who's all of a sudden going to find a hankering for Texas and Florida? Find the 1,000 people sitting on top of the largest unrealized gains, and they're going to decide that, hey, I have a $130 billion unrealized gain. My name is Elon Musk. I all of a sudden decided I'm, I'm going to get a cowboy hat and move to Austin, or I'm going to break out the sunblock and move to, to Miami. I don't think that's sustainable, and you're going to have to have some of these cities and states reckon with what has become an out-of-control cost structure uh, that results in taxation for cities. And what you end up with is California and New York that have essentially priced themselves out of the market, where people are doing the math and are thinking, okay, I'm going to move to Florida and Texas, who are, quite frankly, just more fiscally uh, responsible. Now, there's a price there. The schools in my great state of Florida, the public schools are not very strong. Uh, and you do pay for some of it in property taxes, but there's a reckoning here. I think we're headed towards what I call a value accretion tax. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? This wealth tax that Senators Sanders and Warren are proposing, uh, I don't think that works. I think once you get your capital beyond a certain, once, in other words, you save that money, you're a wealthy person, you're not a wealthy person, and you've been taxed and you have a certain amount of wealth, I think of that as private property. And if you start Robin Hooding it, regardless of the intentions, you violate one of the core pillars of the United States. And that is we have a lot of respect for private property and the government can't come in and nationalize your private property. And also, also they don't tend to work. When I say they, wealth taxes. Why? Because wealthy people are the most mobile people in the world. And if you institute a wealth tax in France and the wealthiest man in Europe, Bernard Arnault, moves his residence from Paris to Belgium. And then when uh, we start instituting a wealth tax in this nation, I think you're going to find that the billionaires in the U.S. are going to all of a sudden get a hankering for London or Singapore or Tokyo because they spend most of their lives on the road. Anyway, so I don't think it works. What we should have done, what we should do, quite frankly, is just have a more equitable tax structure to begin with. And that is eliminate capital gains tax deduction. Why on earth is the money you make from money taxed a lower rate than the money you make from sweat? Why? Because young people make their money with sweat and we want to transfer money and power from young people to old people as we've always done. Why is mortgage tax interest or the interest on your mortgage tax deductible? Why? Because old people own homes. Anyways, we just need a more equitable tax structure and we need to begin thinking about if you aggregate $150 billion in wealth, in California, leveraging their infrastructure, leveraging their great university system, specifically Cal State, the University of California, leveraging their roads, leveraging their infrastructure and their culture that the taxpayers have built up over a century, then you can't just take your $150 billion gain and peace out and then go monetize it in a low tax state. I think we're going to see some sort of value accretion or sort of mutual reciprocity amongst states coming our way. And in other news, the CDC released its new guidelines for fully vaccinated individuals. Fully vaccinated means it's been two weeks after your second dose in a two-dose series, uh, like the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, or two weeks after a single-dose vaccine, such as the Johnson & Johnson one. The CDC says fully vaccinated people can gather indoors together without masks on. They also do not need to isolate or get tested if they've been exposed to the virus unless they develop symptoms. Just about 10% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, and President Biden expects there to be enough vaccines for every U.S. adult by the end of May. It's also actually a really encouraging number, a substantial number of people over the age of 65 have been vaccinated. So 
I think the CDC has lost a little bit of credibility, and that is, I think they're trying to thread the needle, if you will, between ensuring that people don't get lazy or lackadaisical or that we fall behind the curve of discipline and as a result, the curve explodes and we have more and more outbreaks. So you can understand the position they're in. But the notion, uh, you know, kind of their recommendations or their advice on how we should live our lives, in my opinion, has somewhat been disjointed from the reality of how most people are actually going to behave. And so I think they need to get out ahead of the curve with announcements like this and not only acknowledge um, the best science, if you will, or what the prudent course of action is, but the reality of how people are behaving. For example, I went down to Miami last weekend and guess what? This is exciting news. There is no COVID in Miami. At least you wouldn't know there's COVID in Miami. So the notion that they put out a release saying, okay, you've been fully vaccinated twice. You can get together in small gatherings without masks. Well, thanks for that, boss. I got to believe that most people uh, like that are already doing that. I think the more exciting thing is, okay, if you're over the age of 65 and you've been fully vaccinated, maybe it's time you can see your grandkids again. Maybe you can start returning to some sense of normalcy around your life. It just feels as if there has been a delta between CDC guidelines and how people are actually going to behave. And I don't know how you thread the needle between those two things. But I'm not sure uh, when you see announcements that it's okay for fully vaccinated people to not wear masks and get together in small gatherings, it's like, well, something tells me they've been, already been doing that. Netflix Netflix has rolled out Fast Laughs, short video clips to highlight its comedy catalog. Fast Laughs play similar to TikTok or Instagram reels as the video clips play automatically and users can share the clips on other platforms, including WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. Oh my gosh, Netflix, you fast follower, you little saucy minx. Netflix is taking cues from TikTok. And what happens when a marketplace explodes in value? It's blood in the water. It attracts new entrants. It attracts sharks. Do you think that Apple would have brought back from the dead its Titan car project had the automobile market not exploded $700 billion in value? Simply put, if all of a sudden the automobile market uh, had not had not attracted $700 billion in additional market capitalization, i.e. Tesla, I'm not sure Apple would have brought back or dug up the corpse of their car program. And TikTok is probably worth two, three, four hundred billion dollars and the short form video innovation, if you will. And Netflix says, I don't know, we can do that. We have a ton of access. We have a recurring revenue relationship with hundreds of millions of people. Maybe we should try this short form. It's sort of interesting that Quibi got it so wrong, uh, yet the format uh, on top of an algorithm with original creators is probably going to be embraced or has been embraced by hundreds of millions of people. And then Netflix is looking into this notion of short video clips. And it just reminds me of just how brain dead Twitter has been. All of this started. The original gangster here was Vine. Don't get me started. Back to Netflix. Recent estimates suggest that the streaming giant's content budget could surpass $19 billion this year. That would be a 10% increase compared to the previous year. In addition, in addition, Nielsen reported that Netflix accounted for 34% of U.S. streaming as of Q2 2020. Wow, one in three minutes streaming with all those options, and boom, boom, it's Netflix. Netflix, gosh, what an incredible company, right? By the way, by the way, Paramount Plus, this just shows why the film industrial complex, specifically movie theaters and people wanting to grab their 100 million, 500 million billion in the movie theater is literally collapsing on itself. And that is Paramount Plus, which includes Lionel Messier, SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, 72 bucks a year for all of that, six bucks a month 
Or, or I can go to Alamo Draft House, which is a superior film experience, get a Lazy Boy, order a couple as a coppice for the dog, and boom, that's 75 bucks. Well, which one is better, a year of Lionel Messi or Starship Commander Jean-Luc Picard? True story. Every year at Halloween, I dress up as the Starship Commander. Huge crowd pleaser. Huge crowd pleaser. Anyway, that shows you why Alamo, why Alamo has recently declared bankruptcy, and that is the value you get from these streaming networks, the innovation in your living room versus the value you get at movie theaters and the innovation, i.e. pretty much none in theaters, is just absolutely clock these guys in the face. And we're seeing a dispersion of content. It is leapfrogging. It is frogging the traditional channels of distribution that were supported such that the film industrial complex or the healthcare industrial complex or the education industrial complex could grab their piece. Dispersion, who are the frogs? Coursera is planning to go public. They're a frog. They're skipping. They're leaping over universities. 98.6. Uh, telemedicine. By the way, I'm an investor in 98.6. They're leapfrogging hospitals and doctor's offices. Remote anything. Zoom. Amazon. They're leapfrogging HQ, right? They're going over every commercial real estate investment trust and saying, I know. Let's go straight to them. We're going to see a lot of frogs. We're going to see a lot of dispersion. Another interesting business development. Back to Twitter. Twitter is testing out shoppable tweets and looking for ways to better support commerce on the platform. TechCrunch reports, remember them? TechCrunch. So 90s. Don't they feel 90s or knots or aughts, whatever it is? I think of Lindsay Lohan and TechCrunch. Anyways, that the shoppable tweets will include a shop button and integrate product details directly into the tweet, including the product name, shop name, and product pricing. Facebook has had huge success with their shoppable Instagram, Instagram markets, whatever it's called. So I think this is overdue. Do you get the sense? Do you get the sense? And by the way, I spoke to a very senior Twitter executive a few nights ago. They always call me late at night as if somehow it's going to be discreet or off the record when they call me late at night. And it is. The dog's like a vault. The dog's like a vault, right? Anyways, anyways, uh, this individual said that the product development team at Twitter has never felt this much pressure. Well, it's about goddamn time. Anyways, let's hope that Twitter commands the space it occupies and continues to rule out innovation, including a shop button. And who knows, maybe someday even an edit button. So Twitter, finally, finally, feeling the heat. Feed to the flame of product innovation. Let's do a fraction. Let's show a fraction of the moxie, of the creativity, of the innovation that the other platforms have demonstrated over the last decade. Twitter, we're counting on you. T to the winner, product development. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Support for this podcast comes from Grammarly. Writing is something that we do every single day, from an informal text conversation with friends to sending those all-important email to clients. People need to understand what you are trying to say. Thankfully, Grammarly is a trusted AI writing partner that saves your company from miscommunication and all the waste of time and money that goes with it. Grammarly is more than just a grammar check. It can help generate AI prompts or even help you strike the right tone and personalize your writing based on audience and context. We here at the Prop2 team use Grammarly, and all I have to say is it makes our written work better. Plus, Grammarly integrates seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. No cutting, no pasting, no context switching. Personalized on-brand writing help is built into your docs, messages, emails, everything. So why not join Grammarly to work faster, hit your goals while keeping your data secure? Learn more at Grammarly.com. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? 
Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin, a columnist for the New York Times and co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box. Andrew, where does this podcast find you? And I know it's Montreal. That's our big joke. You're Canadian. You can admit it here to me right now. Upper West Side, Upper New West York side. City. That's right. Upper West Side, New York City. I've been so, to Montreal only a handful of times. Formula One in June. We're going, baby. Because um, you and I are close friends. You don't know that yet, but you and I are close friends. Oh, we go to we Formula are. One together. So when when we patched you in, you were uh, emotional and you said that the reason you're emotional or tell us why you're feeling emotional. I um, was just uh, watching virtually, I guess, in this new world we're all living in, a funeral for Vernon Jordan, uh, who, for for those listeners don't know, was was a great civil rights activist uh, turned businessman. who did so many things for the black community over the last 40 years, uh, 50 years, maybe even longer than that. Uh, he's 80, he, he just passed away at 85 years old. And Ken Chenault, uh, former CEO of American Express, was just talking about him. And uh, Ursula Burns, uh, former uh, CEO of uh, Xerox, Xerox yeah. was just speaking about somebody that she described as her best friend. And it was so emotional. And to see such an outpouring of people and what he did for the black community in the in the business world mm-hmm. was just so remarkable. He had been on the board of so many of these companies himself and was a mentor uh, to, to so many. Uh, obviously, he worked uh, side by side as an advisor to Bill Clinton, uh, who was also participating in, in the funeral. But I, what I didn't appreciate was fully and i'd known vernon for a long time and just he was magical he was one of those people who could own the room and when you felt mm-hmm. like when you were in the room with him you know you were his best friend he would he'd, he'd tell you these 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 stories and he was just he was an unbelievable guy but i didn't appreciate or know how much uh he was behind uh the careers and the lives of so many of uh, the black professionals who really did rise to the top and what mm-hmm. he had done for them. And that, that to me was, was something you always, you always learn something new every day. And now that, that was that for me. Yeah. There's been, uh, I, I did not know Mr. Jordan, uh, but yeah, there's been a tremendous outpouring. So let's, let's uh, try and get you out of this and let's pivot uh, to the market. That, that's you. the other podcast you have. That's right. That's right. Um, so you, I was thinking of the markets as this organism that absorbs millions of data points and then spits back a number. And you sort of absorb more points of light around the market than most people. And I'm just curious your sense. So interest rates, what's going on in the markets? Right. When you look at the market right now, what do you think are the two or three things or themes or things people aren't talking about when you say, okay, if I had to describe... Uh, some of the themes in the market right now, things that you're concerned about, things that you see that you uh, think other people aren't seeing. What's what's sort of the gestalt or the the vibe of the market right now, uh, according to Andrew Ross Harkin? To me, I'd say part of it is there's a a 
and th this is not a, a, a new phenomenon in the market, but but buy the rumor, sell the news. And I one of the things I wonder about is, you know, the market went on such a wild roller coaster of a ride this past year, you know, mm -hmm. basically, I shouldn't even say roller coaster because it wasn't going up and down. It was going kind up of a rocket ship or like a rocket ship is right. Yeah. And, you know, here we are on the cusp, hopefully, of of going back to some semblance of normal, maybe in the next couple of months, or at least the beginning of that. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, obviously, you're seeing interest rates rise. You're seeing the, the stock prices fall off. Mm -hmm. And what's so unique and interesting about that is, oddly enough, you investors always say they're looking at 12 months. They're looking at 18 months, 24 months from now. And here they were making that bet a year ago. And people, by the way, of course, thought, what the hell is happening here? Unemployment's you know, going through the roof. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the market's going through the roof. How can these two things possibly be? Anyway, I think there's something very unique happening in that regard. So that that's that's data point one for me. That that maybe now there's an expectation that a year or two or three from now it may not be the roaring twenties, you know, mm -hmm. post Spanish Spanish flu. Um, there's a another element that I'm fascinated by right now, which I can't get my head around, which is. The individual investor, this feels very late 1990s uh, mm -hmm. in terms of just the day trader, you know, active active trader. But the other thing that I that's new almost feels like a political overlay. I don't know if you feel this way. It's like a freedom thing going on. Well, it's, it's cast as a movement, and I wonder right. how much of it is hype and how much of it is real. I don't, I can't, I can't disarticulate the two. So, is it a movement? And no, but but when I say freedom, mm -hmm. it's almost like. People want to have the freedom, the access to be able to shoot the moon, to buy the lottery ticket, to play the game, mm -hmm. the way the professional, quote unquote, plays the game. But what's so interesting to me about that is, you know, for so many years, it was drummed into my brain that my job as a journalist, in part, mm -hmm. is to protect the small investor. Yeah. I mean, that's something, you know, protect the small investor at all costs. That's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so here we are in this moment where I'll go on TV or I'll write a column or whatever, whatever, and say, look, this is a problem. Like this whole GameStop thing. This is like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Mm -hmm. What's, and, and what you get back from folks online, on Twitter, on social media is stop trying to protect us, Sorkin. We don't want your protection. And by the way, your protection, you're not protecting us. Yeah. You're protecting the man. You're, you're protecting yeah, the suit. You're, you're protecting faux, the establishment. We don't buy your faux paternalism. You're in a steam room with Carl Icahn and Gordon Gecko protecting them. There's a there's a totally. that it's a conspiracy against them. And, that and the so that to me is, is sort of a, a fascinating piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece, and maybe this is the sign that we are near a top, though, by the way, you know, Alan Greenspan famously talked about irrational exuberance and he was right, but it was 1996. It was two years it, early. Yeah. He was probably three or four years early. Yeah, so yeah. maybe we'll be having this conversation four years, four years from now and you'll, you'll be laughing at me. The whole SPAC phenomenon of the, these blank check companies makes no sense to me. It's not that it makes no sense to me. It's just, it's a sign of, of craziness. And when anybody and their brother and whether they're a celebrity or they're this or that are getting involved in this stuff and also just getting involved in deals and are not great deals the the disclosure stuff is terrible and and not enough people are blowing the whistle and by the way when you do blow the whistle it's sort of like what i just said before they say stop blowing the whistle this is my access sorkin i want right. access to this is like getting i'm getting 
on the yeah. ground floor of an IPO. Why are you complaining? Why are you giving Chamath Palihapitiya a hard time because he won't right. disclose his fees? What is yeah. that? But let me ask you this, right? You're you're a big name. You you were say you were unencumbered by conflicts, and a, a great operating group with great operators came to you and said, "SPAC is a great way to just raise capital, and we're going to go find a company in media." Would you want to be a part of that? If you had called me twelve months ago, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, maybe. Um, and if I thought you could be done honestly, and what I mean by honestly with proper disclosure, because I just think the, the documentation on, on SPACs today is gross. But can you say more about that? Because I don't appreciate it. You mentioned fees not being disclosed. Can you say what is not being disclosed? Because I thought it was SPACs where they made all the disclosures in advance such that they could just add water. You're saying that's actually omitting certain disclosures. What I'm saying is that I, I don't think that the average retail investor understands mm -hmm the various misalignments along the way with them. So mm -hmm. when the SPAC is first quote unquote IPO'd, there's a group of investors behind it. You often see big names involved in some of the early, it, when the SPAC first goes off and those are brand mm -hmm. names, but those brand names, by the way, that's a financial arbitrage play for them. Mm -hmm. They're not actually betting on anything happening. They're, they're literally betting that they can clip a coupon mm -hmm. uh, for the course of two years if no deal happens and that there's a option on the other side if something magical happens. That's mm -hmm. exactly what's happening and that's all that's happening. What I don't think people understand along the way is the sponsor. So if I was doing it or, or you were doing it, Scott, you know, you would be collecting effectively 20% of the company if you successfully buy something. So you're so if you take just just just, just for uh, purposes of demonstration. So you do a $300 million SPAC, uh, yep. you raise money, you get $300 million in cash. And the notion is you'll go put that $300 million to work. And typically you do a pipe or some sort of debt financing such that you can buy something for five, 700 million, a billion totally, dollars. But you've collected, you've collected at minimum, typically 20% of the original SPAC, 20% of the $300 right. million is yours. This is not pay for pay for performance. This is pay before performance. This is, you're like a banker. You're getting, except you're getting 20% instead of 7% for getting the company public. Right. And uh, what's happening though, my understanding is if you double or triple it up with debt, that 20% effectively goes to 6%. And then the targets, the sellers are getting wise to the fact that there's more SPACs than there are good companies. And they're asking the operating groups or the SPACs to clip yes. that 20% back. So, so the that, market is sort of a So the market's right? starting to get there, right? There's starting right. to be some, some harder negotiations. So that's the first piece. Then the second piece is the D-SPAC when you go buy the company, right? right? And you bring in these pipe investors. Well, the pipe investors oftentimes are getting it First of all, they get to look at the books, which you'd say is a, is a good sign because mm -hmm. it would be an endorsement of the situation. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes they're getting it at a price that is purposely lower. Now, you know, now when I say purposely lower than what it would otherwise be, some people say that's the equivalent of what an IPO used to be anyway, mm -hmm. right? So you have, you have that piece of it. But I also don't think people fully understand. You're seeing with Chamath Palihapitiya with this, this transaction around Virgin Galactic, these guys are not long-term Shareholders. What you mean when he sold his entire stake? <laughs> he sold the stake. He sold the stake. He was not in this. You know, he's he still, but to be clear, he still has a stake through his, yes. his capital vehicle. But when you sell it, when you sell $200 million of stock in a company, 
I, I, I don't know about you, but it's just like, there's no way to, to put lipstick on a pig here. That is not a great forward-looking indicator of when someone who knows the company really well decides to sell $200 million in stock. I wonder if if these things, and I'm like you, I think SPACs will be here for a long term, a long time, but the, the SPACs, the SPAC index is going down and I think it's going to continue to go down. And I think we will likely see that moment as a watershed moment when the kind of king of SPACs, and he was a visionary, he did yep. it early. And I give him a lot of credit for it. Yeah, he, for, it. he kind of forged the market, but when he sells $200 million of stock in a company, uh, especially a company like Virgin Galactic. I, I think of Richard Branson as a visionary. I think of uh, Chamath as a visionary, but it's like, where's the engineer that's going to put people into space? You know, it just feels feels very vulnerable. What do you think? The air is coming out, or it feels like the air is coming out across think, the entire spec universe right now. I think now, it's coming it? out. You know, we saw this already start to happen with this EV transaction that Michael Klein was involved in, where the stock had raced up to, you know, 50 bucks. And then, mm-hmm. by the way, Race it up to 50 bucks because, you know, retail shareholders are expecting a deal uh, with this EV company. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and sells stock to the quote unquote institutions, the pipe investors at $15. So the stock's mm-hmm. trading at 50 bucks and they're getting, and they see this. I mean, like physically it's happening in front of you. It's, uh, and mm-hmm. That's what's different than an IPO. You, don't, you, you know, an IPO, there's a little bit of a gamble at least. This mm-hmm. is like, you see where the stock is and you're getting to, buy it at a massive discount. So I think that we're going to start to see some compression on this. And I do think some of the big name people who've been doing this or have been trying to get into this business, it will become less and less attractive for them because the fee structure will get get pushed down. But when you look at the market, so uh, you you could also make the argument that the number of publicly traded companies has been cut in half the last 30 years. So this is just regression of the mean where more companies are going to be publicly traded. But when you look at the market as a whole, do you say, all right, I, I, I feel uncomfortable with these frothy highs. We probably got another two years. When you think about the stimulus, just pumping all of this sugar, yep. this steroid into the market. I mean, look at 2021 and none of us have a crystal ball, but you see you're closer to the, you have your closer. No, to the look, I think that when you have a, t- I mean, the SPACs are a great example. You have $600 billion chasing not $600 billion of worthy companies. And so mm-hmm. there's an imbalance. What does that mean? I mean, the thing that I keep thinking about with all of this is, you know, is there something systemic here, right? Mm-hmm. Can this all unravel, come undone in some terrible 2008 like way I've been so scarred mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. that period and writing too big to fail and all of that. And what I can't figure out is how that part of it happens in large part because it doesn't feel yet that people are totally over levered. Meaning mm-hmm. I always say every financial crisis is, um, there's, o- there's only one thing behind every financial crisis and that is debt that's leveraged. And you could have everybody doing terrible things. It doesn't matter as long as, you know, it, it's the debt is the match that lights the fire. The thing mm-hmm. we haven't, that I haven't figured out, and I don't know if anyone's figured out is, you know, we used the phrase too big to fail back in the day, back in the day, mm-hmm. 2008, it was in the context of banks. Mm-hmm. Today, we use that phrase oftentimes in the context of municipalities, cities, states. Delta Airlines. Delta <laughs> Airlines, but countries. Yeah. And crisis is a crisis of confidence. And so is there a moment at which somebody says, you know what, I don't think these people are good for the money anymore. And the whole thing unwinds. And that's the part I don't know when we see interest rates rising. And but we're also, you know, it's happening across the world. So 
Who knows? Who knows? But, but, but let's, <laughs> if, if you think about the, the correction in 2000 was we had uh, Pets.com and Cybershop. Yep. Uh, whose business model is buying Furbies for 60 bucks, selling them online for 20 bucks. And at one point they were worth a billion dollars. And then in 2008, it was the subprime uh, crisis or subprime debt or mortgages. If you had to pick one place where it starts here, I mean, I, everyone talks about stocks. I think the bubble is in the credit markets. Right. I see companies that look like fairly mediocre companies that are borrowing at 5%. And I look back, I go, you just need to go back seven years and much better companies went out of business and their bonds were at 12%. I mean, it just seems, uh, you know, high risk, low return. Uh, but if totally. you were to look, so you at, could look at the corporate bond market, but the other thing that started to happen again is a little bit of the 2006, seven thing in terms of some of the way those, those, bonds are structured. I mean, I think a lot of people thought the private equity industry would blow up in a financial crisis. And it didn't in large part because there were so many ratchets and other uh, mm -hmm. weirdo um, provisions and devices in the bonds themselves. So you can extend and pretend for longer. Mm -hmm. And I think you're starting to see that again with some of these, uh, some of these bond issuances where there's that opportunity will exist. So even if some of these companies do run into trouble, it doesn't all you know, the dominoes don't all fall at the same time, which is, which to me is always the thing I worry about. Yes. Will there be companies that are going to go BK bankrupt? A hundred percent. Will there be a lot of them? I'm sure. But will they be massive names? I don't know. Yeah. So if you look at the market, it's really a story of tech. And that is the market sans technology stocks has just done okay to even meddling. And then there's a small handful of stocks uh, that have basically dragged the entire market up. And I think it created a bit of an illusion that the entire market is doing really well. Do you see tech continuing to skyrocket or do you think there'll be a reversion and the, you know, the old economy guys will have their moment? And I mean, over the course of the last couple of weeks, market's been up and right. tech's been down. Compare look, life, kind of look, big tech and the rest of the market. Life is relative, right? Do, do I think that they'll have their moment? Sure, but their moment you know, I don't know how long lived the moment will be. And I don't know, you know, if it's if you're going to see banks on a rocket ship the way Tesla was, I doubt that's going to happen. Do I yeah. think there'll be a reversion of the mean on some of the tech stocks? You'd have to think so. I mean, I just think, come on. I mean, has has everybody not gotten their Peloton already? I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, really? In, um, in the back, yeah, I, I use my Tesla to bring it home. You um, know, so like, yes, I, 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 and by the way, Peloton will continue to grow. It just won't grow as if it's, you know, going to the, yeah. going to the moon. So I, I imagine the tech will, will quote unquote struggle in terms of in the market, but I think they're still great businesses. I think Amazon's, you know, such a killer, amazing business. Yeah. You know, having said that, you tell me what you think is going to happen if Washington and this new administration decides to break them up. Um, and by the way, maybe that'll be good for the market. Maybe they'd be good yeah, for these companies and their stock price ultimately. But you look at some of the names, whether yeah. it's Tim Wu or- um, Lena Khan today. Exactly, Lena Khan today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, they, if they have their way, and I don't know if they will, boy, would they take a sledgehammer to these companies. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting. Uh, and I would argue overdue. So uh, talk to us a little bit. Give us your- your thoughts on crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, thoughts? Oh my God! You know, <laughs> let, let me just say I was um, 
I want to say it was Brian Armstrong. I think I met Brian Armstrong. Brian Armstrong runs Coinbase. Mm -hmm. Maybe in 2012 or 13, 13, I want to say. And I remember he uh, he was explaining to me and I didn't really get it. I didn't understand. He said, okay, you know what? Um, We'll set up an account with five bucks. By the way, the five bucks today, I think is probably worth a hundred something dollars. I don't know what it is, but, Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't get it. And I I just didn't get it. I I do think it's not a bad store of value. I could see it being Mm -hmm. like gold. If, if you, if you believe in gold now, Warren Mm -hmm. Buffett will tell you, don't buy gold. Well, gold is stupid and, and it very well may be, um, I see it potentially as a store of value, not as a currency. I don't get the currency argument. Payment method. Yeah, you mentioned Coinbase. Uh, They're looking at going public, supposedly, at a $100 billion market cap. I believe that's about 70 times revenues. And if it gets a pop, it could very well be worth more than Goldman Sachs, Coinbase, on the first day of trading. I I don't know about you, but that just seems, what's the term? Fucking Looney Tunes to me. I don't look. I don't understand, and maybe I'm. But th- but that's the thing. I I've watched this thing go from you know whatever it was then a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks to where are we are now fifty thousand dollars, say fifty four thousand dollars. So there's part of me that says, what do I know? And there's part of me that yeah. thinks, okay, call me in a couple of years, and we will be having a different conversation. But maybe it'll be two hundred thousand dollars. Maybe it'll be a half a half a million dollars. Maybe it'll be a million dollars. I've literally talked to people who have. Tried yeah, to convince me it's a million bucks a coin. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, maybe if you play the gold story, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I do, but I do think, I don't know if you feel this way. I think there's so many people, maybe they're boomers, maybe they're different, who now are almost just, they're just, I don't know to say succumbing. They're just like, I give up. Okay, I'm in. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I, I've been wrong thus far. Now maybe I'm supposed to take the flyer. But isn't this when, you know, just when you think the train is leaving the station, <laughs> Mm-hmm. This is not when you're supposed to jump on. Um, That's the problem. I, I thought it was overpriced at 19, and I thought, I don't want to have too much fear of missing out, so I'll buy a few coins. And I did a podcast with Michael Saylor, and, and you speak to him, and within two minutes, you just want to buy. He has, right. he just, totally. He just, like, this guy's smarter than me, and he's been right and right. And I, th- and I can't not buy things on sale. So I think, well, if it goes to 15 or 10, I'll buy in. And then, yep. you know, now it's to 54, and I just can't, I just can't do it. Can't I'm just not physically capable of of um, doing it. So I want to switch gears. You're you're a role model for me for a lot of reasons. But one, um, I've optioned a lot of, or a couple of my books for theatrical or original scripted television production, except the difference between you and me is that yours get made. <laughs> uh, so give us some insight into the Hollywood side oh, goodness. of the Canadian here. What what Tell us about Hollywood and getting shit on film and what you've enjoyed about it and what, what it's like. So I lo- I've, I've, I've been blessed and I should tell you, I'm working on a new project right now uh, with the great Jason Blum and Lena Motto um, and HBO to put something on its feet around um, GameStop. So we'll see. We'll see where we land What on an that. original idea. I haven't heard. But you haven't heard about one of those? Yeah. By the way, I'm I think you're involved on one, in one too, right? I'm working on one in Netflix, which okay. means it's not going to happen. Okay. So we'll, we'll, that we'll, means we'll, we'll race together. will not happen. Yours will. Okay. So you're doing no, HBO. There's a, lot, there's, a, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room in the market. But let's talk about that. What's the theme? What's the story? What I mean, well, when you look thing. at GameStop, think, what's the drama? What gets what gets you know? I think how there's is, so many different components. How is Julia parts? Roberts or um, um, you know or uh, I don't know uh, Ed Norton involved in this? Like, how do we make it dramatic? How does it? Oh how is my it goodness! Fun? I think there's so much drama. I mean, I think you could you could be you could take it from the hedge fund side. You could take it from the mm-hmm. Robinhood side. You could take it from 
Gill's side. I mean, there's just uh, for, you could you could go find some other people uh, who traded on top of this. I mean, I mm-hmm. think there's just so it depends sort of how you how you play it. But I think there's so many different ways to make these stories great. And I think people oftentimes with financial stories, which is obviously the stories that I love, they get anxious about can you put that on film? How does it work? Mm-hmm. You know, these guys, they're all supposed to be sitting in front of a computer screen all day. And I think both with Too Big to Fail and Billions and hopefully this, I think if if you make it about the people, if you make it about them and their mm-hmm. own story, there's so much drama in it. And even though there's some people who are going to be making billions of dollars, and first of all, there's people making billions of dollars and losing billions of dollars. And mm-hmm. so I think the st- there's stakes in it. And I think it's always a personal story. And I think you realize that even these guys who have you know great titles on their business card, you know, they, they do put on their pants the same way we do. And if you can capture the emotion of what's going on during those those moments, I think there's a really interesting, really interesting stories to be told. And I feel like we I feel like Too Big to Fail in a way sort of was able to to do that in large part. You know, I think we all had sort of very two-dimensional views of all of these people that we were reading about. I know I mm-hmm. did, and I was writing about these people and I had but then if you can get inside the room, if you can get the viewer inside the room, they can see what everybody's talking about and what they're saying. It, everything becomes gray. And and to me, of, gray is where the magic is. Gray is where the magic is. You are so sexy. Gray is where the magic is. Gray is so, where the magic is. So I'm just, I want to know the real Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yeah. Can you tell us, can you give us a sense? I would just love to know your day. Describe right. your average weekday. Take us through it. Oh, man. Okay, so... Pandemic has made things a little bit, I don't know, better or worse. I'm not sure in terms of just mm-hmm. how the day flows. There's less mm-hmm. moving around, which I guess may be better. Mm-hmm. Um, squawk starts at six. I'm usually up around four, four thirty. I do that till about nine. Oh, till about now, not about nine, till exactly nine. You're on for three hours. Three hours. Jesus, that's real on TV. I usually get out of the chair around seven to go get another, or, or right before seven to get another coffee if I can. Yeah, we've but what are you doing between- espresso machine. What are you doing house. between 4.30 and six? Are you researching stories just, or are you just, doing scripts? No, 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 just uh, just getting ready for the show. I mean, look, the, so typically during the day, I'm getting all sorts of notes and things from producers and I'm constantly mm-hmm. back and forth with them about what we're doing the next day and who we're gonna be talking to and. Uh, you know, which segments I'm going to lead, maybe Joe or Becky's going to lead to other segments and we're mm-hmm. figuring all that out. And so I've usually read most of the stuff before I go to sleep at night. I'm trying. Do you have any go-to sources for information? Is it Twitter? Is it, is it the information? Is it like, what are your I read all that. I mean, I'm, I read the information. I read Twitter. I go to the Drudge Report. I obviously read the New York Times and Dealbook. I mm-hmm. read, um, you know, the journal and the FT. Do you get any of these lists like CNN's Five Things or Morning Brew or any of those? I, mean, I, I like Morning Brew. I actually give them a lot of credit. I read mm-hmm. Brian Stelter. I read Axios. I read Politico. Probably so you're just absorbing a ton yeah, of Yeah, just taking all that stuff in. And then in the morning, yeah. you know, and it's changed actually over time. It used to be that a lot of stuff would break at like midnight overnight in newspaper. Mm-hmm. But now nobody holds anything back. So there's probably less new, new in the morning. But now I mm-hmm. probably find myself on Twitter now a lot in the morning trying to see what's happened overnight. I often go to sleep. I mean, I'll get you through the rest of the day, but I go to sleep typically at uh, around 9, 9.30. Mm-hmm. So I sort of miss sometimes what's going on at night. Um, but 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 I but I should say one of the things I'm doing, by the way, at 4.35, mm-hmm. 5.30 is, you know, we, we published Dealbook, the newsletter, mm-hmm. uh, which is my baby and mm-hmm. something that I spend an inordinate amount of time on. So oftentimes I'm slacking with the team, um, 
Jason Carrion, Michael De La Merced are working in London, so they're up mm -hmm. even earlier than I am. And so mm -hmm. we're going over what's, you know, last minute changes, things like that in the newsletter, which is also, by the way, self selfishly very helpful to me for the show because it's also mm -hmm. like a way for me to read in and understand what's going on. Yeah, and, and I, the thing stuff. I love about writing is it forces you to actually understand a topic somewhat. So, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, nine rolls around. Um, in the old days after the show, we'd probably meet with producers and, and talk about the ne next day. Today, these days, I probably do it more on the phone and maybe some Zooms a little bit, but, but not so much Zooming, just jumping on the phone. Um, mm -hmm. Today, I very proudly worked out for an hour, which I normally in the old days was not very good about. I've tried to get better during the pandemic. I don't know about you. Mm -hmm. And then, and then give us, so how do you wind down? What do you, what do you do after? So you do Squawk Box, then you do New York Times, Deal Book. And then, well, so I, now in this pandemic world, I, the great part is I have three children. We all have dinner mm -hmm. together, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. How old are your kids, Andrew? I've got a four-year-old and two uh, twin boys who are 10. Nice. So and we've been having a ball together. I mean, that's been one of the great blessings of the crisis. I know you're not allowed to say, or the pandemic, I know you're not allowed to say there's any blessings in it, but that has been like a meaningful one. And just, by the way, the idea that they can come in in the middle of the day now. So that I feel like has totally changed us as a family, at least for me as a dad, just mm -hmm. how much time we're all able to just be around each other. And, and that's been great. How do you think it's impacted your marriage, both of you being home? Your wife's an information <laughs> age worker as well. So, oh, okay. We're going to answer this question. You know, this whole, we're trying to be honest. So the whole, this mm -hmm. whole podcast is honest, honest, honest. Mm-hmm. In a way, I think we got so much closer, actually. But I will also say there were like, you know, as I think with every marriage, especially when we're all together and just- Well, and three like kids anxiety. under the age of right. 10. You're I, in Vietnam. <laughs> that's not easy. I mean, I we can talk were, about the Hallmark Channel version, but that's right. just not easy. No, I think there were, were, were we, there were jokes early on that, that we were going to- you know, some people said there were going to be a lot of babies when the pandemic was over, and other people said there'd be a lot of divorces Divorce. when, the, yeah. when the pandemic was yeah. over. And I'm, I'm sure there'll probably be both of those. Um, I think I'm, I'm hoping we will buck the trends of both of those as well, um, mm -hmm. and I think we will. But yeah, no, there was there were a lot of tough tough times, and I, you know, there was a, there was periods where I was freaking out, and there were periods when she was freaking out. The good news was we actually when we had our freakouts, they were at different times for the most part. So we were But what were, what was Andrew Osorgan freaking out about? What, what were the moments that you were worried about? Were they about family? Were they about work? Were they about, what were they? Why were you um, upset or stressed? I think I like a routine. So mm -hmm. when, I think in the beginning, just the routine was gone. So I would, so I had to sort of struggle to get the routine back to create a routine. And so I was just sort of mm -hmm. not my, my normal self, maybe not my best self mm -hmm. at, at all times. So in the beginning of the pandemic, we, we were in Connecticut, we'd gone up to Connecticut and we, had, and I, I'd sort of figured out a nice rhythm up there. And then the school started again in the, in the city and I got back here and my whole life has been about work. And mm -hmm. and seeing people for work, by the way, and I, I I don't know if I'm supposed to admit that or I'm supposed to say that sucks and I'm a, that's terrible that my life revolves around work. I love my work. I don't know. I have mm -hmm. lots of uh, misgivings about how I feel about all that. But I think coming back to the city and being and and, and but sort of like doing what I do, but not really being able to do it was like a bit of a, a mind f for me. And I think there were there were times where. Where Pilar also, you know, struggled with, you know, I think, you know, her, by the way, the book business that she's in mm -hmm. was blasting off during this period, oddly enough. Yeah, it's done so, really well. So but, so, but that also meant she was like crazy busy. 
I was crazy busy. The kids were having a new thing. You know, well, and I'm sure you picked up your fair share of the slack, Andrew, just like all men, just like all of us. I'm uh, sure I, you, you know what? absolutely put your let's, shoulder let's down. Let's say it here. Uh, I never did enough and she is superwoman. So let's just put it on the record because she is. So uh, look, you, you uh, had remarkable success at a very young age from these iconic institutions. Can you look, when you look back, like what are the learnings there? What, what pieces of advice would you offer young women or men that got you, uh, that, you know, how did you get so much so early? Are there any hacks or what advice would you give to your younger self or younger people, my younger listeners? So first of all, I'm lucky. Let's just start there. Like mm-hmm. truly, truly lucky. If you don't acknowledge that there's luck involved in this, I mean, I, I like to think I worked hard, but really there's a lot of people who work hard in life and, and don't necessarily have the, some of these opportunities. I, to some degree, I think I was naive. I was somebody who all I wanted to do was get my foot in the door. I was happy to get coffee for people and Xerox and Staple. And I all I wanted to do was somehow become indispensable. That's what I used to say. Just somehow figure out a way to make yourself indispensable. Even if your indispensability is getting somebody coffee, but mm-hmm. that they become dependent on you getting that coffee and that somehow the way you get the coffee is better than others. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was, I don't know if I was better getting the coffee, but I was always, a, um, I always had ideas. I was always pitching, constantly pitching, pitching stories, pitching things that people could do, uh, pitching business ideas. What, you know, I, I just, I wanted to get st- stuff going. I still do that today. And so I think it's about getting yourself, getting your foot in the door somehow, and then just making yourself useful and trying at least, you know, I like to think not having a total ego about it. I would do anything. I mean, literally would do it. I still think that some of the, the most fun I ever had in my whole career was working for Stuart Elliott, who was the advertising columnist when I yeah, was I 18 him. years old. And I literally, he would like send me around New York City to like pick up stuff. And I was having a ball. Let me, so as we wrap up here, so- what would you like to do professionally in the next five years that you haven't done so far? Like, if you think, if you're really honest, say, you know what, I'd just love to do, I'd love to do this. So, what, what would be an indulgent thing for you professionally or something? What's a box that hasn't been checked for you? So, honestly, and I know this is going to sound crazy, I feel, I, I genuinely feel blessed in that I've gotten to do a lot of things I've wanted to do. Mm-hmm. There's not much that I'm, like desperate to go do, I would love to write more books. I'd love to, mm-hmm. you know, put another film out there. I'd love to nail the column. I'd love to write a really great, you know, like investigative series or something in the paper. That I, that's that's a box. You know, I've written some some things. I did this project around guns two years ago uh, mm-hmm. that I think I hope I like to think move the needle a little bit. I'd love to try to do that again. You know, maybe I'll have to try my hand at a podcast like you. I'm, mm-hmm. I keep telling, it's like Bitcoin. I keep saying, get in and you keep waiting. Right, right. And here we are. And here, here we, we are. are. So last question, and it's the same question, but personally, what would you like to achieve over the next 10 to 15 years, just personally in terms of your own growth? My own growth. I do think this whole pandemic in a way has made me reflect a lot on like what's actually important. And I do think you know, I feel like I have some great relationships over the years that I've developed friends and things in the world of journalism and business that I've been covering for all these years. But in the end, you know what, when when, when this gig is up, 
the gig will be up and who knows what's going to happen there, right? The family is the thing that's, that's hopefully not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And what I hope is I hope I can somehow develop these, these amazing lasting relationships as a father and as a husband, not just when the kids are young, but I want, I want to be one of those dads. I don't know if I'll succeed at this, where the kids actually love you later and like want to hang out with you. Is that mm-hmm. possible? I don't know. But boy, would I love to figure out how to, how to be that person. Andrew Ross Sorkin is a columnist for the New York Times and co-anchor of CNBC Squawk Box. He's also the founder and editor-at-large of DealBook, an online daily financial report published by the Times, and is also the best-selling author of Too Big to Fail, How Wall Street and Washington Fought to Save the Financial System and Themselves. He joins us from his home in Manhattan. Andrew, thanks for the time and stay safe. Thank you, and uh, hugs from Montreal. We'll be right back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back. It's time for Office Hours, the part of the show where we answer your questions about the business world, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at section4.com. Question one, Brendan from New York. Go ahead, Brendan. Hey, Scott. This is Brendan from New York. I'm calling to ask about Twitter. I know you've answered a lot of questions around this and you have a point of view uh, around having them by CNN, which I think is a really interesting idea. What about having them by Reddit? Uh, it seems like we're where they're shifting to this interest graph focused and Reddit's design of interest-based subreddits. You could have this perfect storm of, you know, an interest-based feed kind of in real time, tying to the depth of conversation and engagement that you get on Reddit, um, both which would be highly monetizable um, over times in terms of audience. 
So let's talk about whether it's realistic that Twitter could acquire Reddit. Its valuation most recently was $6 billion, which means that they'd probably have to buy it for 10 because the people who invested at 6 don't want to get their money back. They want to make money. So this thing right now, because of the GameStop uh, phenomena and Wall Street bets, it's brought a ton of attention to Reddit, ton of traffic. Uh, so it's probably $10 billion, which means an additional $10 billion issuance in stock and cash. That is a 16% dilution for Twitter. So I like the way you're thinking, Brendan. A lot of traffic, probably a lot of opportunity to monetize. Could is it? It feels like though. I don't know. Does it feel like low calorie monetization though? Because it feels Reddit feels very advertising to me. It doesn't feel like the premium kind of product you can charge for. And look at it this way. Look at it this way. I think you could pick up CNN for somewhere between seven and ten billion. Would you rather have CNN, which feels more premium and probably an easier point of differentiation to move towards subscription or paid subscription, whereas Reddit I think takes you more towards Android, and that is more clicks more engagement, more traffic that you would monetize with advertising? Because I'm not sure people think, oh, I'll start paying for access to Reddit information. But I like the way you're thinking. I do think Twitter has to go vertical. I just wonder if Reddit takes them more towards an ad model as opposed to a subscription model. And I wonder if Reddit has become too expensive, if you will, for Twitter. But again, like the way you're thinking. And that's, I think, the way that Twitter should be thinking. And I think those types of questions should be discussed, have a robust discussion at the board. Thank you, Brendan. Question number two. Hello, Professor Galloway. My name is Tyler. I'm a 2011 Stern graduate uh, coming to you from the lower west side of Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, I'm interested in getting your opinion on NFT art and the opportunity to use it as an investment vehicle. At Stern, we learned that art was an asset class that is not correlated as well with the economy as other asset classes and during a recession can actually appreciate well whereas other asset classes won't um seems like nft art is blowing up these days is this bitcoin where bitcoin was three years ago uh, would you recommend going out and getting some pieces on nifty gateway or OpenSea? how do you see this as an investment vehicle Tyler from the Little Apple, Manhattan, Kansas. Always good to hear from a Stern grant. So NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, everything about Bitcoin, there's just certain concepts in certain people's names I can never remember or wrap my head around. And there's something about the blockchain and crypto that reminds me every day that certain parts of my brain are dying because I am barreling toward death. Um, that's another post or another podcast. But anyways, I have trouble understanding every component of the blockchain and NFTs are no different. My understanding of NFTs or non-fungible tokens is that it's a means of saying this, not even this art piece, but this video of this art piece or this representation of this media in this medium are singular and there is no other. And that has the opportunity then or the values of a currency where two people decide it's worth something and it really just represents something that is a quote unquote supposedly a store of value if two people agree that it's worth something, which is the definition of a currency or a fiat currency. NFTs for me, and I got everything I'm saying from a blog post from Seth Godin, kind of the original gangster marketing thinker. I wonder, or Seth wonders, if people or artists are going to now spend more time trying to market their NFT. So just as SPACs seem to be more a function of how well someone markets that SPAC as opposed to the underlying business because these businesses are high growth, low profitability businesses that are all about the vision. And I wonder if NFTs take that to the next level where it's not about the art, it's about your ability to create hype or heat 
around this new construct or currency that sits on top of a piece of art. And I probably explained it incorrectly. And if I sound like I don't understand it, trust your instincts. But the art world, uh, art is really incredible. As an asset class, I think it's the best performing asset class for the last 30 or 40 years. It just keeps going up because it's both a store of value and something you can consume. The majority of things that your consumption, whether it's a Tesla or a private plane, or a couch, or uh, I don't know, things you buy that you really enjoy typically don't go up in value. And we convince ourselves to spend more money than we should on a watch or a piece of jewelry, but typically speaking, there's not a very liquid market for them. Whereas when you buy a master or an old master, or you buy a Damien Hurst, those things have exploded in value and people also get to enjoy them. And there's a big market emerging to securitize uh, those assets and borrow against them. So the art market has just been a fantastic asset class for the last several decades. And this is sitting on top of it. This feels to me like something that is going to go crazy and get a ton of attention. And we're going to find weird pieces of art that have had an NFT placed on top of them, run up in value, and there'll be a lot of media and there'll be some FOMO and a lot of speculation. But this just to me, based on my boomer notion or preconception of asset values, uh, this to me feels like something that doesn't end well. So some additional context in 2020, the market for NFTs tripled to reach $250 million. In February of this year alone, just in February, this gives you a sense of the heat that's coming to NFTs, the 10 most popular NFT collectibles totaled roughly $400 million in sales volume. So $250 million in NFTs in 2020, and then just 10 in February, garnered $400 million. Mind blown. Thank you for the question. Question number three. Howdy, Scott. Casey here. I just turned 32 last week and graduated with my bachelor's degree 10 years ago. I've been doing things in those years, like moving from Dallas to Chicago to Portland and going from project manager to scrum master to product manager. I did just cross the six-figure salary mark as of last September, which was a huge milestone far from the trailer park I come from, but I still have a confused sense of self-worth. So I'm considering starting MBA core classes online during COVID till I feel I can go somewhere in person, maybe late 2022, but I'm not all in on the idea. Do you have any kind of litmus test for this decision, especially for a not as young person? And do you think the new administration could have an impact on tuition rates or something else I'm not thinking of that should influence my decision? Casey, so I get different flavors of this question almost every day from somebody. And first off, uh, 32 is young. It all feels relative because you're hanging out with people who are probably, you know, having kids or their parents are starting to die or there's things happening in your life that make you feel like you're not a kid any longer. But 32 is very young. And the way to think about an MBA or anything else that's going to take a couple of years is you're going to be 34 in two years, no matter what. The question isn't whether 34 is too old to have an MBA. The question is, at 34, would you rather be 34 with two additional years of work experience or would you rather be 34 with an MBA? So just sort of put the, the age thing aside. There are several dimensions around this decision. Uh, one is simply put your existing, your existing gig, and that is do you have senior level sponsorship? You're making six figures, which is good money. Do you like it? Are you accelerating? Is your pay growing faster than inflation? Are you getting more and more responsibility? Because there's a decent chance at your level, if you were to leave, they would replace you with an MBA. So you might be interviewing for the job you left after you get out of business school. Some other things to consider. Do you just like the idea of going to business school? Do you need a break? Do you enjoy academia? Do you want to make a pivot? Business school, 
I've always thought is sort of tailor-made for what I call the elite and the aimless. And that is someone who has their act together, is good, is ambitious, hardworking, but wants to pivot or doesn't know what they want to do. For me, it was a great kind of two-year respite to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. Because going into business school, all I knew was that I didn't want to continue to do investment banking, but had no idea what I wanted to do. And an MBA is a great place, a great way station to kind of figure it out for a couple of years. Also, the financial position you're in. Uh, I don't think uh, it's worth, I don't think an MBA is worth full freight unless you get into a top 20, even a top 10 school. Also, also, I would let the market decide. I would apply uh, and then see where you get in. Apply to several schools. If you get your heart set on one school, that's almost a guarantee that you're not going to get in. So apply to three, four, six schools. Hopefully get into more than one and then play them off each other for financial aid. And let the market decide and then sit down and say, okay, and sit down with some people you trust. Here is my current opportunity set. This is my seat right now. This is my financial situation. These are the schools I got into and this is the cost. So getting a full ride at Wharton is hard to turn down. Getting uh, uh, absolutely no economic help and going to the business school at, I'm not even going to name a second tier business school. I don't know. I don't know if that's even worth it unless you got nothing else going on and your parents are paying for it. So there's several dimensions here. Opportunity costs, the the brand of the school you get into, which still matters a hell of a lot, the financial aid you get, and also just personally, personally, do you like the idea of going back to school for two years? Part-time MBA is also an option. I personally think a part-time MBA is a difficult way to go. It's three years of working during the day and then going to school at night and your school's sort of accommodating, but generally speaking, your work doesn't say, oh, you don't have to work as hard because you're going to school. Also, is there an opportunity for tuition remission among your uh, current employer? If they really love you and want you to continue to thrive, maybe they'd be willing to pay for some of that part-time MBA. However, however, you're making $100,000, you're 32, which is very young. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, Casey, you should take time to reflect on your blessings and your achievements. You are doing really well. Thanks for the question, Casey. So Algebra of Happiness, last week I talked about the passing of our wonderful family member, Zoe, our 14 and a half year old Vishla who brought us tremendous uh, joy and happiness. And it was striking the outpouring of support and empathy uh, that we received. Whenever you produce content, a podcast, a blog post, there's a certain X factor to it. Uh, and that is I've put out stuff that I thought was genius. It was like a tree falling in the forest. No one seemed to give a damn. And then I put out other stuff that I thought, okay, this is good, but not great. And it, it results in a, it gets, it goes viral or, or you get a lot of response. Uh, this was something I felt, uh, I would say a little bit exposed or vulnerable around. And I thought, is this too personal? But almost more than anything I've talked about or written about, this got the probably the greatest or the largest response and also the most heartfelt response. Uh, there's something about, I think, this pandemic and how much emotion we have all felt. Um, uh, and then um, people just relate to the, the extraordinary relationship they have with their pets. And it felt like there was just this outpouring of empathy and emotion. And I received uh, cards, video messages, uh, really nice emails, comments. And I also received, we're going to play for you and we're going to end our podcast on this, a poem from a guy named Michael in South Africa. And actually, my dad asked me, he said, what's it like? We went out to lunch in San Diego uh, um, several months ago and someone came up to me 
in the middle of our lunch and said, sorry to interrupt, uh, I love your podcast. And my dad said, does that get old? Or how does that make you feel when people come up and speak to you or total strangers? So how does it feel? How does it feel when you get kind of random poems or when people send you very personal messages or if someone comes up and interrupts your lunch? How does it feel? It feels wonderful. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate all the well wishes. And it was wonderful seeing all the pictures of Vishalas and other breeds from around the world and hearing stories about uh, what a meaningful relationship people have had, not only with their dog, but how the dog has been this fantastic vessel of love uh, for their life and for their other family members. So anyways, here is our here is Michael from South Africa who sent us a poem. Hey, Prof G. This is Michael from Johannesburg in South Africa. I always thought that when I finally got around to sending you a voice note, it would have something to do with technology or marketing. But that's certainly not the case. This voice note's about something far more important. It's about dogs and poetry. And in particular, it's about Zoe, your beautiful Vizsla, who's sadly no longer with you and your family. We used to live in California, and when we came back to South Africa in 2015, we brought back Milo, our beautiful golden retriever, who, like Zoe, was an integral part of the family. Sadly, a couple of months after we got back, we found out that Milo had bone cancer and we had to put him to sleep. On the day that we put him to sleep, my wife posted this on Facebook, and I wanted to share it with you and your family. For you, Zoe. So this is where we part, my friend, and you'll run on around the bend. Gone from sight, but not from mind. New pleasures there you'll surely find. I will go on, I'll find the strength. Life measures quality, not its length. One long embrace before you leave. Share one last look before I grieve. There are others, that much is true. But they be they, and they aren't you. And I, fair, impartial, or so I thought, will remember well all you've taught. Your place I'll hold, you will be missed. The fur I stroke, the nose I kissed. And as you journey to your final rest, take with you this, I loved you best. That's it from Johannesburg for today, Prof G. Thanks for the show. Absolutely love it. And by the way, all dogs should be allowed on the couch. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of The Prof G Show from Section 4 and the Westwood One Podcast Network. I can't believe you got me to talk about all that. Good for you. Uh, I'm Oprah. So the <laughs> crown is racist. Is that what you're trying to say? Anyways. Um, <laughs>